Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual. So when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get. Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. 
BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash persia. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the History of Persia, Episode 10, Governing an Empire, now featuring updated intro music. Today, we're continuing our discussion of the Persian Empire and culture beyond the regular narrative. Last time was all about artwork and architecture. This time, we're going into how the early Persians actually organized and governed their new empire. When Cyrus the Great completed his conquest of Babylon in 539 BCE, the Persian Empire was a venture on a scale never before seen in the world. The Persian Empire under Cyrus was larger than any other kingdom that had preceded it, about four times larger than the next biggest competitor before them. That was New Kingdom Egypt at its height. I will continue to use the Achaemenid versus Tastebid terminology that I talked about last week to describe the differences between the empire before and after the rise of Darius I, because Cyrus and his immediate successors had very different approaches to governing an empire than later Persian kings took. The difference may be best described as taking over old structures versus instituting new ones, or maybe less flatteringly as improvising versus organizing. When we get to Darius, I'll go into more detail about the different satrapies and territories within the Achaemenid Empire, but for now, I'll keep my focus on the Tastebid period when Cyrus and Cambyses conquered kingdom after kingdom, but left the existing power structures relatively intact, just substituting a local king for an appointed satrap, and even then that was not always the case. Generally, Cyrus seems to have appointed one of his own to be in charge of a conquered territory. This includes figures like Tabalus and Harpagus, the Persian satraps in Lydia, Ugbaru and Gubaru in Babylon, and once they were old enough, his sons Cambyses and Bardia in Bactria and Central Asia. I'll have more to say about those two in future episodes. Almost all of the figures I just listed were Persians, or at least Medes, who seem to have been the only non-Persian group allowed to have power in the upper echelons of the Persian nobility. But as of now, the royal family is still fairly small and young, so we don't see too many of them appointed as satraps yet, just the two princes that I mentioned before. The sole exception that I've named so far is Ugbaru, the Gutian from the northeast fringes of Mesopotamia, who was the general leading the Persian occupation of Babylon and he only reigned for two years before dying of old age, at which point the Persian Gubaru took his place. 
Some satrapal appointments eventually became hereditary, like in Lycia in southwestern Anatolia, and Bactria, sort of. It was almost always run by the crown prince, but many others just received unrelated governors appointed by the king. Oh, and that thing I just did, using satrap and governor, or satrapy and province, basically interchangeably, I'll probably do that a lot, just to get some word variety in here. Those are probably the best English translations. In some of the satrapies, viceroy might even be a better term, as it implies ruling near-independently in the name of the king, which may have been more common during Cyrus's time than it was in better-documented times of the empire's history. This is also probably a good time to address some of the terminology issues. Satrap is a Persian term, or at least Kshathrapavan is the old Persian word that became satrap when it passed through Greek and Latin. In his histories, Herodotus also talks about hipparchs, who ruled great satrapies, under which there were many regular satrapies. We know very little about how exactly the Persian Empire and provinces were divided, so we can't say anything with certainty, but we don't have a Persian equivalent for hipparchs in writing anywhere. In some local sources, notably inscriptions from Lycia and Jewish records in the Bible, satrapal positions that became hereditary are called kings themselves, despite receiving their ultimate jurisdiction from the great king in Persia. Between this and actual vassalized kings, it's easy to see the origins and need for titles like Great King and King of Kings to assert Persian power over the satrapies. Speaking of satrapies, as a word for provinces, that seems to be an entirely made-up designation. While Old Persian does have satraps, there is not an equivalent-sounding word for the territory controlled by the satrap. There's the old Persian word dayava, which loosely translates to lands, and seems to be the closest equivalent we see in any Persian documentation, but also lists of dayava don't line up with what the Greeks tell us about the satrapies, so there's no real way of knowing. That said, I don't see how English, where earls rule counties and shires, and governors lead states and provinces, can criticize Persian for not having exact words for satrapy, even if that's what the Greeks called it. At the end of the day, satraps ruled divisions of the Persian Empire in the name of the king, and we can at least be sure of that. In the aftermath of Cyrus's conquests, it seems that the satraps stepped in to fill the role of the recently deposed kings, while most of the existing power structure and organization of the new province remained intact. We see this power structure idea in Lydia especially, where the decision to leave the native Pactuace in charge of collecting tribute backfired spectacularly as seen in episode 6. Gubaru in Babylon also seems to have filled roles previously associated with the likes of Nabonidus and Belshazzar meaning that the satrap there took over most of the responsibilities previously associated with royalty. Other possible examples of centrally appointed governors are Zerubbabel and Sheshbazar, both identified as the first Achaemenid governor of Judah, called the province of Yehud by the Persians. The Bible identifies Zerubbabel with the pre-existing kings of Judah from before the Babylonian exile, but it also identifies Sheshbazar as governor at the same time 
and neither seems to have a Hebrew name. One possibility is that Zerubbabel is the Jewish leader, permitted to act as governor over the small province, and Sheshbazar is another Achaemenid administrator, possibly a court secretary who acted as the agent of the king to monitor the local governor and report directly to Cyrus. Other possibilities include that they were both governors at different times, or maybe even that they're the same person. Imperial court secretaries like that were assigned to almost every satrap's court across the empire to report directly to the king and royal administration back in Persia, and make sure that local leaders paid their tribute and did not try to revolt and become independent. This was apparently the counterweight to balance out how much independence each satrap could have. Cyrus also made much more use of appointed governors than preceding empires had. The Babylonians and Assyrians had preferred to leave local kings in charge and accept tribute payments whenever possible, only removing the local leaders and installing provincial governors when the vassal kingdoms proved to be too rebellious. The Persians preferred to avoid this and assert more direct control when it was practical. Appointed satraps could have significant independence, allowing the king himself to be very hands-off, but appointed leaders were less likely to have the local support needed to go into revolt, and were reliant on the Persian court for their position, thus giving them more reasons to remain loyal to the royal family. All of that said, Cyrus and Cambyses also made use of vassalized native kings when it suited them. We've actually already encountered one example of this in our narrative. When I discussed all of the possible places Cyrus might have invaded in 546 BCE, other than Lydia, one of the options was Cilicia, the region on the Mediterranean coast between Anatolia and Syria. The native Cilician kings remained in power during the Achaemenid period, providing tribute and loyalty to the Persians in exchange for keeping their power and status. Cilicia was an anomaly in that it retained its kings despite being near the heart of the empire. Most of the local royalty who kept their positions were on the fringes of Persian control, where it was more practical to demand payment and aid rather than exercise more direct influence, always maintaining the option to attack those vassals and their allies militarily if they failed to pay. At various points, these areas included mountainous Armenia, the vast steppe region of Central Asia, and after Cambyses conquered Egypt, Libya and Nubia were like this as well. This brings me to how exactly all of these satraps and kings showed that they were being loyal to the Persians. I've been talking about tribute payments all episode, but that might be giving you the wrong idea. You should not be picturing the government assessing each province and then deciding how many gold and silver coins they should send to Ecbatana. First of all, despite Cyrus continuing to produce and make use of the Lydian Cresid-style coins, coinage was really not all that widespread at this point. Cresids, now featuring an image of Cyrus, only really circulated in and around Lydia. If tribute was paid in precious metals, it would usually have been in the form of ingots measured in weight as opposed to a set number of coins. However, most tribute during the Tasbid period was paid in kind. Goods, services, and products from each province were sent as payment. Grains, wine, and other agricultural products, including animals, were common items of value sent as tribute in the ancient world. 
The other common tribute was local metals or stones that were valued either for practical or aesthetic reasons. Obviously, you have gold and silver, but also iron used in weapons and copper and tin used to make bronze, which was still used in some crafts. Precious stones could include lapis lazuli from the satrapies in modern Afghanistan or gemstones from around the empire. In the Persepolis fortification and treasury documents, two major caches of administrative documents from the time of Darius I, we see similar payment in kind from city administrators to the people who worked at Persepolis, paying them in rations, larger or smaller based on rank. This wouldn't normally include metals and precious stones, but would have included rations of grain, meat, and wine. Most likely, services were paid for in a similar way under Cyrus, as coinage was even less developed. People, either enslaved or voluntary, were often sent as part of the tribute as well. For the most part, they were sent to perform some kind of labor, but whether that was as servants, manual laborers, temple personnel, or something else could vary. That runs back into the issue of slavery, and how it doesn't seem to have been prominent in the empire, but yet manages to appear all over the place. It was probably much more common under Cyrus than later kings, so I think I'll table a more detailed discussion about how slavery worked in the Achaemenid Empire for a later date. For now, I think the best interpretation is that slavery was not particularly common among the Persians, but there doesn't seem to have been any sort of abolitionist movement, and they don't seem to have shied away from slavery when it did appear in and around the empire. I have no interest in making excuses for ancient slavery. I hate that this still needs saying, but yeah, owning other people is a horrendous thing. However, it is still a part of the ancient world, and how it was implemented varied greatly from one culture to the next, so I will continue to address how the Persians used slaves as it comes up. But moving on. How did the Persians decide what and how much of any one thing was being sent? The answer seems to be on a case-by-case -case basis. If we work back from Darius, who claimed to be the first to assess each satrapy and establish regular taxes, then we can assume that Cyrus and his sons did not attempt to do so. However, we do know that tribute was paid, so it must have been negotiated or imposed when each new territory was incorporated into the empire. Whether or not the newly conquered people had a say in how much they were obligated to send to Persia each year, I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. 
Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Probably varied based on how willingly they had submitted. How all of this worked within a given satrapy also seems to have been varied. It was up to the satraps and the existing local policy to decide how much tribute individuals in their jurisdiction had to pay. For instance, each Ionian Greek city seems to have been assessed individually by Lydia, but there's nothing to indicate that a similar system was implemented elsewhere. There is another category of payment that the Persians received. While formally organized satraps and kingdoms that had become vassals only after being defeated were required to pay a set tribute, there are other peoples, largely on the most distant fringes of the empire, that Herodotus describes as sending gifts. Some of these were tribute-paying provinces giving one large gift upon being conquered in addition to their regular tribute, in which case the gift was more of a please-don't-kill-us-bribe but other gift-giving peoples are deliberately listed apart from the tribute payers, and have been an object of speculation among scholars. It would seem that some peoples and tribes who were never defeated by the Persian army willingly sent gifts of resources and manpower to the Persians. Why? There's no way to say for sure, but one good explanation is that they were basically bribing the Persians to leave them be militarily, or hoping to have the Persians as an ally in their own local conflicts. These gifts were not sent on a regular schedule like tribute, but infrequently, whenever the gift-givers wanted to court favor with the Persian kings. Gift-giving kings, as willing allies and supplicants to the Persians, had even more independence than vassalized kings and satraps did, but at least as far as we can tell from later Persian records, were still claimed as part of the empire, and included in lists alongside lands ruled by the tribute payers. The political benefits to this relationship are obvious. The Persian king gets to claim an even larger empire and even more power, whether or not they could really exert it. And these smaller gift-giving kings got to have the greatest empire the world had ever seen on their side. Of course, all of the claims about territory that we have come from later kings, who even continued to claim territory that had been lost. But that is not unlike how Babylonians and Assyrians in ages past had talked up their territory. How the Taisbid rulers specifically portrayed their control over any of their subordinates is unclear to us. But given the words of the kings before and after them, it was probably very similar. After all, this is the same Cyrus who claimed to be king of the world and king of the universe. With all these different provinces, 
all with varying levels of direct control, you'd think it was a nightmare to try and organize getting things, be those people, instructions, or tribute from one place to another in the ancient world. After all, it's not like Cyrus and Cambyses could send an email to the satraps to remind them that it was tribute season again, or get a new lion-headed Riton with two-day shipping. However, the Persian Empire benefited immensely by using the roads that had long been established as the paths of major trade routes throughout the Near East. Almost every major city of the age was a stop on at least one of these roads. Once again, we see a resource that was not fully exploited and organized until the time of Darius, but the underlying structure of well-known routes, traveled daily by thousands of merchants, were already present, and connected the far corners of the empire to one another, like a vast network of blood vessels with an artery at each city, and two thriving hearts at Ecbatana and Babylon, at least until the new Persian capitals were completed. In the Taspid period, most of these routes were not organized and maintained as roads as we would usually think of them, though some segments may have been properly constructed infrastructure as early as the Neo-Assyrian period. It wouldn't be until Darius that a real road system was implemented across the empire. However, some of these informal trade routes do connect our story to a road of a different sort. These were the ancient foundations that later developed into the continent-spanning networks of the Silk Road and Khorasan Road trade networks of late antiquity and the medieval period, which ferried goods from as far off as Spain and China from one end of the Eurasian continent to the other. So now we should have a basic understanding of the responsibilities of the satraps, vassals, and their provinces, as well as how information, armies, and tribute payments moved around the young empire, which is just about all we can ask for in this period. The next question is, how did the Persians actually do that? How did they demonstrate their control and send out orders? We've already established that the primary agents of Persian control were the satraps and royal secretaries who monitored the satrapal courts and reported directly to the kings. Beneath them would have been a veritable army of tax collectors and administrators helping to set and implement policy. Orders were carried from one level to the next and from province to province in the form of letters written on papyrus paper or unfired clay. Permanent copies could be made by transcribing the same message onto a clay tablet and firing it to harden the material and make the inscribed words permanent. Alternatively, papyrus documents could be recopied and recopied over and over again for preservation's sake. For monumental public displays designed to impress ordinary people and nobility alike, carving words into stone was a good way to, for kings and satraps to ensure that their message was preserved for generations to come. Within a given region, local languages could be used. Greek in Ionia, Hebrew in Yehud, Egyptian in, well, Egypt, and so on. But the issue of communicating across the whole empire is a bit dicier. As I've mentioned before, Aramaic was by far the most common language in the Persian Empire at this point. It was rapidly adopted as a language of commerce and international communication beginning in the 11th century BCE which I discussed along with the rise of the Aramaeans in episode 1. With the Aramaic-speaking world all under Persian control now, 
a more standardized form of the language, called Imperial Aramaic, eventually developed. But at the time of the Taspids, we're probably still looking at what linguists call Early Aramaic. Despite the existence of more regional dialects, this was probably still the most common language used to disseminate royal decrees and imperial business across the empire. Unfortunately, Aramaic was almost exclusively written on papyrus, which is made by pressing the plant fibers from the stems of Egyptian papyrus reeds together to form a writing surface. Papyrus was similar to modern paper, but much more brittle. Because of this and the tendency for plant fibers to decay over time anyway, few examples of Persian Aramaic documents have come down to us. Once again, the Persepolis tablets that I mentioned earlier help shed some light on this time period, despite actually coming from the time of Darius. Using what we know about the world before Darius, we can use these tablets to make another educated guess. In the 1930s, over 20,000 tablets and tablet fragments were excavated at the site of Darius's capital city, which I will give a lot more attention to on this show when the narrative gets to Darius. For now, we should know that about a thousand of those tablets were written in Aramaic, but about 10,000 were written in Elamite. We shouldn't take this as Elamite being the primary administrative language for the whole empire, but definitely for the major administrative language in the Persian home province, which in previous centuries had been the heartland of Elamite territory. This is further evidence of the Elamite influence that I discussed in the last episode. The Persians, or at least the Taspids, came to power in Elamite territory, apparently as Elamite kings, and adopted local traditions and language. Despite Persian dominance and the eventual identification with the region and its people as Persian rather than Elamite, the majority of people in Parsua were probably of more Elamite background than they are typically identified with. If the importance of the Elamite language in royal administration was still being maintained a generation later, it is safe to assume that it was prominent in the Taspid period as well, probably more so. This places Elamite and Aramaic as the primary two languages of the Persian Empire. So what's the difference between them? Well, actually quite a lot. Aramaic is a Semitic language related to things like Hebrew and Arabic, which used its own distinct 22-letter alphabet. That Aramaic alphabet is what is sometimes called an abjad, meaning an alphabet where the vowels are not written out and have to be supplied by the reader. Elamite, on the other hand, does not seem to be related to any other known language, called a language isolate by linguists. It is not written using an alphabet at all, but rather cuneiform symbols. I've used that word cuneiform before on this show a lot without actually discussing it too much. It refers to a system of ancient Near Eastern writing that used wedges and lines to indicate syllables or words, or even whole phrases. This means that there were thousands of unique symbols in any language using cuneiform to indicate every possible syllable. If that sounds overly complex, and like it would be very daunting to learn, then you're right, it is. But it was also the first known system of writing used by the Sumerians and most of their successors in and around Mesopotamia, beginning more than 5,000 years ago, and persisting about to the Persian period, at which point alphabets started to become much more common. That said, 
cuneiform does link us to the last significant language in the empire at this point. That would be Akkadian, which I've actually talked about in some detail on this show already. It was the prestigious and ancient official language of Babylon, and carried the weight of millennia of importance behind it. Even if it began to fall out of practical use during the Persian period, it was still culturally valuable in ancient Mesopotamia, not unlike Latin in the early modern period. Akkadian is another Semitic language, though from a different branch of the linguistic family tree than Aramaic, and was also written in cuneiform script, but a different set of symbols than Elamite. Its prestige carried on well past the fall of Babylon as a kingdom, and Akkadian appeared in official inscriptions in and around Babylon for another 600 years. So, we have Aramaic as the primary language for communicating across the empire, Elamite as the most apparent administrative language of Parsua, and Akkadian as a prestigious ceremonial language. That leaves one tongue conspicuously missing. There's no Persian, Median, or otherwise Iranian language on this list. It's not that they just spoke Elamite, despite its significant influence. The Greeks described how the Persians spoke, and we have inscriptions written in Old Persian, as scholars call this early form of the language, from later kings. It's completely counterintuitive to think that the Persians didn't have their own spoken language, even if they did also use Elamite. They must have spoken something before conquering Anshan. A few scholars have suggested that what we call Old Persian was actually the Median language, not Persian, but that too would have been in use before the Taspid period. The trick is in a claim made by Darius, that he was the first king to have the Iranian language put into writing. According to that claim, Old Persian was not a written language until after Darius ordered that a writing system be created for it. The veracity of that claim has been challenged, but without any examples of earlier Old Persian writing, I think it's best to take Darius's word on it for now. So during this period, Old Persian was probably in use as a spoken language by the Persians, and maybe the Medes, who ruled the empire, related to the many Iranian dialects spoken in the eastern and northern satrapies, and more broadly, part of the Indo-European language family, but with no written component as of yet. And so, it wasn't part of the administration in any way other than being the actual language spoken out loud by the king. Well, there you have it. A vast system of satraps, vassals, and allies, spanning from modern Afghanistan to Turkey, with multiple major languages, connected by informal trade routes, and a variety of individual commitments. It sounds messy, but at least in the early decades of the Persian Empire, this was effective. It allowed Cyrus and Cambyses to establish control over a territory on a scale like nothing the world had ever seen, and laid the groundwork for their successors to establish more direct and organized rule. And I think talking about ruling is a good place to leave things off until next time, when I'm going to talk about kingship and the royal family in the Persian Empire. In the meantime, if you're looking for more information about the show my list of sources, the Achaemenid family tree, the artwork from last episode, and maps of the Persian world up to this point, head over to our website at historyofpersiapodcast.wordpress.com. You can use the contact page there, or my email address, historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com, to get in touch with me via email, or 
Find me on social media. On Facebook, it's the History of Persia podcast. And on Twitter, it's at History of Persia. And I just have to say a huge thank you to everybody who has supported and shown interest in the show up to this point. We did it, we made double digits, and I'm really excited to keep this going for a long time. As always, to help the show grow, leave a review or rating on iTunes or whatever your favorite podcast app is, and send the show around on social media. And if for some reason you haven't yet, remember to subscribe to this show on your podcast app so that I show up in your feed every other week. Until then, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.